This is our prime suspect, Jason Derrick Brown. Tough to say where he might be headed at this point. We should see what kind of trail this guy leaves us pretty soon. Just not the Jason I know. He's a con man, Melanie. Plain and simple. I need to speak with Jason. My brother is dead. <laughs> he now I know you know Jason, and I know he's been here recently. We got a little opportunity. Eighty grand, three days. I'm gonna rob an armored truck, and I want you to help me. That's above your pay grade. That was the trailer for American Murderer, the new movie about FBI fugitive Jason Derrick Brown. Brown murdered an armored guard in 2004, and the never-ending search for him inspired writer and director Matthew Gentile to tell the story on screen from multiple perspectives. Stay tuned because you and I are going to hear the exclusive interview with Matthew where he talks about the crime, the cast, and more. I've seen the film, and I think you should too. It's got a big cast with some standout performances. You might recognize Tom Pelfrey as conman J.D. Brown, or maybe not because he does a masterful job of splitting your brain in two with his amped-up party juice. In another life, it might have been fun to hit the club with one or the other. The director says he saw the story as a neo-Western as Brown goes from town to town casing the joint. Interesting. In story, usually it's a white hat cowboy who takes care of the bad dudes and then rides off into the sunset, never to be seen in the same place again. Think about a character like Shane from the 50s, now in the body of six foot five Jack Reacher, for readers to believe he's the one and only. But a 5'10 bad boy from the boy band era running cons to leave people worse for their wear? Poor Jackie Weaver, who plays Brown's good-intentioned mother. God bless her. I mean, really, it's something for people who have loose family ties to consider. I've said I think there's a chance that Brown isn't pushing daisies. Think about it. He could be the surf instructor who operates out of the dive bar or the guy behind the counter asking if you want French bread with your order. He could be anywhere. Regardless, he'll be on screen because of the person I had the chance to interview and who put forth years of work to bring it to your eyes and ears. When we conclude, I'll chat with the much older Brown who'd be 53 years young today. It's a one-way interview, of course, but maybe, just maybe the man is tired of being that reclusive groundskeeper who works the graveyard at the golf course. Even the best bad characters have some redemption left in them. Otherwise, why write the story? It's something I want to know. How about you? Let's listen. He's been on the FBI's most wanted list for 15 years now, but is Jason Derrick Brown still alive? He gunned down an armored guard outside of a movie theater in a suburb of Phoenix in 2004, escaping like a little kid on a bike. He got away with a truckload of cash and hasn't been seen since. It was a brazen crime, and it's a story that inspired writer and director Matthew Gentile to bring it to the big screen with a new movie out later this month. It's called American Murderer, and next I'm going to talk to him about the crime and the movie, maybe even give you some of my reasons. Matthew, it's an honor to have you with me. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me, Chip. You got it. You got it. So uh, 
awesome title to the movie. Um, you know, uh, full disclosure here, I did get a screening of it, so I'm very excited about it myself. Although, I'm not a critic. I'm giving it five clock shots to a paper plate. <laughs> I'll try not to give away too much because, you know, people got to go see it. Well, thank you. They really so, first question here for you, sir. Uh, the sister in the movie briefly mentions his missionary background. Because Brown had already completed a missionary trip in France, do you believe this prepped him to be on the run for so long? It's an interesting question. You know, um, I don't know that the him being a Mormon missionary was necessarily what prepped him to be on the run. I think what really prepped Jason Derrick Brown to be on the run was the a lot of things one being a wandering con man who goes from neighborhood to neighborhood constantly you know he he is in my you know i, I see the film a bit as a neo-western and jason is kind of the mm. equivalent of an outlaw desperado who goes from town to town you know um, oh yeah mm -hmm. whereas you know the fbi agent after him is the lawman the sheriff you know hunting down his, his prey um mm -hmm. but you know i think what really prepped jason to be on the run was that you know this you know this man was was taught a way of life by his father um who was also a con artist um mm -hmm. and a you know petty a fairly petty criminal um but you know it had mob ties and connections to the criminal underworld and you know jason's father disappeared 10 years before jason did um himself mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you know jason's father was known by many accounts to have kind of coached the kid you know coached jason in particular but the other kids mm -hmm. are in the art of disappearance, uh, evading law enforcement, not cooperating, all of that. So, you know, this is Jason, you know, one thing I think that's important to know is that Jason Derek Brown was taught a lot of what he learned. He didn't, you know, come up with it all on his own. His father really coached mm -hmm. him. His father meant a lot to him. It was, a, you know, it was a right. pretty, you know, conflicting uh, mm -hmm. relationship where he was both, he, he admired his father and you know, he was loved by and loved him, but also, you know, suffered some abuse at his hand. So, both emotional and, from some accounts, physical. So it was a um, a tricky relationship. But he was taught that by his father. I don't, you know, I don't know. There are theories that he was hiding in the Mormon Church, but I, you know, that I can't really speak to. I just think that he, this guy, was to quote Bruce Springsteen, born to run. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, um, and that kind of brings me to my next question. But, you know, just to touch on that, I, I really did enjoy that part of the movie there, which I don't think a lot of people know about that father connection. So that absentee father kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah um, so I think a good segue into my next question. You know, he has a chameleon-like nature, which is done really well in your movie, and someone I tend to think of as a rogue myself. Uh, the movie features a cat-mouse game between an FBI agent and Brown. In the movie Catch Me If You Can, we see an agent track down a perpetrator in a church in France. Do you think Brown, if still alive, is as lonely as that other con man character was? It's a great question. You know, I mean what kind of life is a life on the run? You know, that's, you know, the thing without, you know, spoiling the film. I mean, but we already have, we are, you know, anyone who buys a ticket <laughs> or streams it after listening to his podcast is going to know that he's still missing. So, you know, we're not spoiling mm. saying that he is still missing and on the run, but you know, it kind of comes at a certain cost, you know, he erodes his humanity in the process and to disappear truly, which, you know, back in 2004, I think, 
was obviously a lot easier than it would be, say, today. To oh, yeah. Oh, you know? 100%. But, right. But the way mm-hmm. you do it, you know, ultimately to actually disappear is to cut off contact with everybody you know. Because the FBI <laughs> are always monitoring the people who are closest to us, a criminal. So, oh, yeah. You know, the way he, Derek Brown, essentially, he has to say goodbye to himself and to everyone around him forever. So I would imagine the life is lonely. You know, I would imagine, you know, he obviously has been able to keep a low enough profile to not get caught. Um, so, you know, again, where he could be, where he could have gone is a mystery that might have us scratching our heads for the rest of our lives. Like, you know, it, it is with D.B. Cooper. I don't think anyone's expecting a closure on him. And it's now been 18 years since the crime and he's been missing. So it's, oh yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's tough to say what, what his life is like. You know, I could imagine that, like, I don't know if anyone watched Better Call Saul, but I, uh, you know, the guy in the Cinnabon right behind the counter or, you know, a waiter at a restaurant or someone teaching surf lessons in Mexico. Yeah. He really could be anywhere. My sure. guess is he's out of the country, you know, and he's been able to convince people he's not who he is. Great, great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've said in my podcast that whoever gets top billing on the FBI's most wanted list will be brought to justice if alive. It's like a spotlight shine on one person where more resources and tips are applied. It happened to Bin Laden, and it happened to Whitey Bulger when he took over the number one spot when he got nabbed with like 20 times more cash than J.D. Brown ever had. Do you hope to shine a light in a way since the feds don't really bring it up in the news? And after all, the most wanted list has been broken up into categories sort of like an Amazon sharp uh, shopping cart for criminals. Right. Well, you know, you know, I could say that my intention in making the movie was never to be a lawman. I will say what led me to make the movie was when I was 14 years old, exactly what you just said. I, uh, you know, I used to go on the FBI's website with the juvenile hope of helping them catch a fugitive because oh, really? before I wanted to be a filmmaker, I wanted to be a fat. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> that was my childhood dream. So criminals criminals were fascinating to me. And, you know, Jason's face naturally stood out because you have this, you have a sea of guys that you got, like you said, Osama bin Laden, Whitey Bulger, you know, and then this surfer dude from Southern California. So Jason naturally did stand out. Um, But, you know, I didn't think about it for quite a long time. And, you know, it was pretty crazy to see so many years later when I first set out to make this movie that he was still missing. Um, but mm. I must say, I never made the film with the intention of catching him. That was not my, you know, because I, I don't think that's necessarily what like, a film that mm-hmm. do. Now, if that happens to be a byproduct of the film, that it brings so much awareness that it does end up getting him caught, which, uh, you know, a lot of people have said to me many times that that might happen. Um, you know, I, I can't think I'm opposed to that. And I, you know, like if that happens, that happens. But my intention was really to, you know, examine this, this person more than the crime, this human being who yeah. really yeah. did this heinous thing and really take a deep look at him and ask some questions about why do we fall for con artists? You know, how do they keep having this day in the sun in our culture? Because it's not just, you know, Jason Derrick Brown, there's Elizabeth Holmes, and you have Anna Delvey, like, and the Firefest guy, like, you, you know, we, <laughs> they've kind of re- come back into the zeitgeist in a way, and that was even yeah. after writing the screenplay that all of these, you know, Connors we talk about kind of resurfacing in the news and in culture, yeah. so I really wanted to just examine this kind of guy, you know, and Jason Derrick Brown, this charismatic figure who can charm so many people, 
make people love them, you know, and ask why. Why do we do that? Why do we fall for people like that? And examine that and how that ties into the dark side of the American dream, you know. So that's really oh, yeah. what it was about. That's what I was yeah. trying to do with the film. But uh, sorry, there's a huge play. <clears throat> Dear Lord, it's like I'm in Top Gun Maverick right now. <laughs> it passed. Um, sorry about that. Um, but yeah. Well, yeah, that that kind of leads me into. I, you might have answered my next question actually, but I'm still going to ask it. Um, you know, sometimes I got the feeling that Jason Derrick Brown listens to my episodes, or at least I've been told. Um, I do think he is still alive because, for one, <clears throat> you know, I think that it would be really hard for Mr. Sin of Retention to take his own life. You know, what made you focus on him for your movie, not some other manipulator like Skylar de Leon, that so-called kid actor who stole a yacht and killed a couple in the same month and year that Brown had committed his crime? I never knew that story. Um, yeah. What, Skylar, what was his name? Uh, there was, uh, you know, if you're in L.A., I think, in Orange County, there's a whole lot of uh, mysteries in Orange County, um, right. and a lot of stuff comes out of there. And one of them was uh, uh, back in 2004, it was two weeks before Jason Derrick Brown, um, Skylar de Leon, convinced a couple from Arizona who had basically worked all their lives for a yacht, a $400,000 yacht to sell it to him, to him and his wife. And, um, he, it, it, he convinced them that he was a mighty Morphin Power Rangers actor. However, he was a secondary, uh, kid on one of their episodes and he just basically came up with a story as a manipulator would and got a, a couple other people involved with his crime and he he killed them for their yacht so it's a very heinous crime and it's one of those orange county stories so it's a you know it's a, a character who is a manipulator who is a con man who is a chameleon and it's unbelievable what that guy did as uh, somebody who convinced uh, these people that he was going to buy their yacht and had the money to do so. So I was just curious about why you focused on Jason Derrick Brown. Um, but I think you answered that before, but I was just curious if you um, maybe yeah. had some other stories you were interested in. Well, people. You, know, I, you know, look, I mean, I'm, you know, my brand right now as a filmmaker at the risk of using that word is true crime. You know, I'm fascinated by criminal behavior, you know, con artists specific you know especially um but all kinds of, you know the um you know what really drove me to the story um of jason Derek brown was not so much the crime as it was the people who knew him and who loved him you know and part of what we do in the film as you've seen is you know we really tell the story of jason Derek brown through multiple perspectives so you're yeah. not getting the film from his point of view. You're getting it from like about six or seven. Minutes. You have, you know, yeah. Ryan Phillippe plays Lance Lyson, the FBI agent who's been tasked to hunt this guy and bring him to justice. You have yeah. Adina Menzel who plays his landlady and love interest, and she sees Jason in, in a romantic way because he's the hero who took care of her son and was good to him and charmed her and was a cool boyfriend and fun and outgoing. And you see how she could, how someone could fall in love with him. Then you have yeah. the sister who sees him, you know, whose view of him changes throughout the movie and throughout life because she, you know, loves him. This is her kid brother, but she sees as the movie progresses, and she's, yeah. she's forced to come to terms with who he really is. So, you know, the first versions yeah. of the script that I wrote were kind of actually much more minimal, and they were really only with Jason. But as I yeah, yeah. It and you know had it developed with producers, 
um, you know, and was and was working on it and getting it you know, into shape to shoot, I realized that the story was much more um, dynamic and interesting mm-hmm. and emotional if you really saw it through all these different points of view of these people who loved him. So, you know, the movie is as much about Jason Derrick Brown as it is about the supporting characters. Like, even though it is all about Jason, I actually really view it as an ensemble film. Um, you know, and like yeah. also like the mother played by Jackie Weaver, right? Who, you know, can see right through him. So seeing Jason through all these different angles ultimately at the end of the movie, whether you love Jason, hate him, or want him to get caught or, or don't, you get a three hundred sixty degree view of who he was. And so that was my intention. Yeah. I think that's why yeah. the story sustains itself because at the core, to me, it's a film about family. Um, that's the one word yeah. you know, I go with, you know. Yeah, I, I kind of picked up on that as well because dude had options, you know. He had options. Right. He had a he had a life. He had thing other things he could have done. And uh, yeah, for sure, maybe that's part of the mystery. It's like you know, you had these. You know, a lot of people don't have options. You had some options, and you took the wrong path. So, um, you know, Tom Pelfrey plays Jason Derrick Brown. You know, something that I think is a masterful chameleon-like performance. And, you know, that said, Brown's actor doppelganger out there is Sean Penn, whose body double was once questioned by the feds since they look so much alike. Um, Penn was in Mystic River, where he delivered one of my all-time favorite lines when he said to one of his gangster cronies, I got eyes, pal. That one line summed it up for me. An American murderer, Pelfrey, screams at one of his low-life cronies, above my pay grade. All the while, he's got a gun to the little dude's dome. That summed it up for me. It was the pivotal moment where he he had a line that he crossed, and he could never, ever go back. Is that how you intended it to be? That senior talk, that's a great question. Um and thank you. And, you know, I, I agree that Tom Belfry really gave gives an incredible performance in this film that I think, you know, uh, you all should check out. Um, but, you know, when we did that scene, that scene you're talking about is a really um, crazy off the wall scene where Tom's character asks his friend to help him rob an armored truck while doing some drugs. <laughs> and the scene goes off the rails when the friend challenges him. And, um, you know, when we filmed that scene, it was Tom Pelfrey and Moises Arias, who's also an excellent actor. Um, and we shot that scene. And I got to tell you, Chip, it was one of the most intense experiences. Like we, we rehearsed it and we had the crew, watch, you know, because I always rehearse privately with the actors and I put the crew in to watch. And they see this scene and they have no idea what to expect because, you know, a lot of them haven't necessarily read the script or whatnot. And mm-hmm. so people are watching. And I literally, like, when he did that line we were talking about, I heard mm-hmm. gasps amongst the crew members. And mm-hmm. then it ends, and it gets quite funny. <laughs> and they all broke into laughter when we called cut. And I knew at that scene we had something good because, and you never know when you're filming. You really only know when you get to the end. But I knew that scene was, was going to work because I, oh, saw yeah. the, I saw the reaction. Was It was like live theater. It was really exciting and dynamic. Um, you know, I when I wrote that line, I... I I think it's def. I think you're picking up on something because you know above my pay grade, like that's what it's about. You know, Jason. You know, it's like we said, dark side of the American dream. He wants to be at the top. He wants to have wealth. He wants to have success, but he doesn't want to work for it. And so, when this character challenges his, you know, street cred, masculinity, whatever it is you want to call it, you know, he does flip on a dime, right? And there's that volatility within him. Mm-hmm. I would say that I didn't intend that. Um, 
Interestingly, yeah. Uh, you know, when you write lines, you don't necessarily know why you write them. <laughs> but uh, yeah. so that's, a, that's an important one you picked up on. So very, it's very observant. Well, you know, that's my job. <laughs> in, in writing, you know, in writing, there's a saying, don't go where angels fear to tread lest you get lost. I feel the line that J.D. Brown uh, crossed was a lot like that. And this is where I think the title American Murderer really fits uh, well. You know, like most risk takers, without a moral compass, they tend to escalate their crimes. Brown didn't have to murder the armored guard. He was smart enough to get away with it with just a holdup. He chose cold-blooded murder, and that escalated from fraud to other crimes. Does this just go along with this thrill-seeking nature, or do you think he's capable of killing more people? That's a good question. You know, I... Look, I mean, if he's capable of doing it once, who's to say he's not capable of doing it again? I mean, I think Jason has, so, if he's not a sociopath, he has sociopathic tendencies. Um, and I would say he is a sociopath. Now, you know, when I make a film and I dramatize a narrative, you know, I'm not necessarily looking at him as a sociopath, right? But I would say that his, the facts of his behavior indicate that he was one. Um, so, you know, if he was desperate again, because, you know, I think that's the other thing about Jason is, you know, I don't necessarily think this character is insane. I think he, in his mind, he was desperate and he was very, and his crime was very calculated, methodical and thought out, um, you know, and he really made few mistakes, um, actually, like in terms of, you know, the one that did get him caught was, you know. Yeah. Uh, operations. So, you know, I think mm -hmm. that does definitely indicate something pretty scary about his nature inside. What he's done in 18 years and how he's been, if he's assuming he's still alive, because we don't know that he is. Um, right. You know, I agree that there is a good chance he still is, but, you know, we just don't know. Um, you know, it's it, anything is possible. Um, you know, if I, my guess is, though, to stay hidden this long, he's probably stayed pretty close, far under the radar. Because I do think that yeah. he got away was a little had a little bit to do with luck. Because um, I don't think Jason Derrick Brown is necessarily the smartest criminal um, alive mm -hmm. in any stretch. I think a lot of the that the fugitives who have gotten caught, like or apprehended or killed, like Bin Laden and Bulger, were definitely more sophisticated. You know, in their yeah. operation. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, I, I for sure. I agree with that. So I appreciate the silence of movies sometimes, you know, hence the golf course scene with his brother near the end of the film. Just a lot of silence for me and a chance to get a good close up of the character. If I were a filmmaker, it's something that I would want to do without a lot of dialogue and, you know, a scenic backdrop. I think it really plays. And it's a setting, actually, where someone like Jason Derrick Brown might have spent a lot of time if you weren't a con man turn murderer but more of a straight arrow like his brother is that something you planned on to flesh the character out or the lack thereof well it's interesting you bring up that scene um because you know that's also very you know that's a scene where jason's quite desperate because he's asking his brother for help in a time when he, he really feels he needs it and you know this is a relationship that has had taken some hits over the years um due to you know, Jason's criminal ways and the brother's straight-laced ways. And I think Tom Pelvery and Paul Schneider play that scene really well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when it was written originally, the scene kind of ended as if Jason got one over on him. Um, and, you know, something Tom was really good about, and Paul too, in the rehearsal, when we rehearsed that scene, 
was they mm -hmm. actually completely found this moment of silence between them. And it was on a Zoomers because we filmed this movie in the height of the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. And there was this moment where the two of them just looked at each other. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, no, this is not a joke. And they really communicated almost telepathically. And it was absolutely beautiful. And yeah. we shot the scene. I made sure to write it into the script. And then we did it that yeah. way. Um, so, you know, yeah. yes, and I agree. I think silences are really powerful in film. You know, another moment of silent is right before Jason uh, murders the guard. We, we take out all the sound at that moment. Um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm, a stu I'm a student of cinema. You know, someone who's really a filmmaker who's really incredible at that is uh, Martin Scorsese. When you look at films like Ben mm -hmm. Paul, um, mm -hmm. you know, or the departed even or, or any of his his masterpieces like he he really uses sound <laughs> to put you yeah. into the, the characters and sometimes he will suck okay. out all the noise from the movie and he does a really okay. amazing moment in raging bull where right before uh, jake lamana gets beaten down he, he he sucks out all the sound before he gets like massacred and <laughs> it's um yeah. you know, there's a lot you can do with sound it's a real sound design is a real art and uh, silences are important. Yeah. You know, the actress uh, Chantel Van Sanden, who plays Jason's sister, she pointed to that when she because she saw my shorts before she my short film before uh -huh. she came on, uh -huh. um, and she pointed out that I had a tendency to use silence in different in certain spots. So I've had people point that out before. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah good. Like, in your shorts, I saw you use these silences, and I was like, ah, oh, that's interesting. You know, sometimes you don't realize you do things. I, I'm and I know you know as a writer. You know, you yeah. know, just do stuff and <laughs> riff. Yeah. yeah, there's little things. There's little things I pick up on. I, you know, I love the departed. You know, the cops are saying he's a cop. You know, I just I love that movie so much. And and it's you just watch some things over and over. If you are a student of it, as you said, you probably watch it hundreds of times. And then you find me, you know, find little things um, in great movies. So awesome to rewatch stuff. Um, speaking of uh, dialogue, uh, Pel free says bro a lot you know undoubtedly <laughs> did that i don't think he uses that term in speaking with his actual brother though was that meant to mean he really doesn't have any connections to anyone other than himself a person who was abandoned as his young kid by his father as you said i think that's a fair read into it you know um i will say though well it was a tight script um, and mm -hmm. Alfrey and I really did. I did a lot of rehearsals with most of the actors, but I did a little, I did the most with him where we just, you know, would talk about the script and like read the line. He would read the lines out loud. I'd read the other parts and I'd give him mm -hmm. a chance to like get his, you know, get around the words, feel them, you know, make sure he was comfortable with it. Um, pretty non obtrusive process. You know, when you cast someone as good as really when you cast people as good as Tom Pelfrey, Ryan Phillippe, Dina Menzel, Jackie Weaver, Chantel, Paul, all of them, you yeah. kind of stay out of their way. You know, you try not to give them, I try not to give them too much direction because, because I cast them and that's why, you know, yeah. they're good because I knew that when I cast them, that they would be able to, to, to do these parts, you know, better than I had even imagined. Tom did uh, is an incredible ad libber and at improvising, and he would add things on the fly often that I think really helped his performance. You know, because I think what's great about Tom's performance in this movie is he's very unhinged. 
You know, he's not. Um, he's, and I think to play someone like Jason Derrick Brown, I think an actor has to be kind of out of control. You know, if you're too yeah. in control, you have to, you know, yeah. it's become off boring or stiff. And Tom really got himself to the place where he was super unhinged and able to, you know, add extra bros and dudes and, you know, uh, stick his tongue out and like a lot of these just fun things that are Jason Derrick Brown. Um, so, yeah. You know, yeah, I think the bro is like, you know, part of just how he talks. And, you know, Jason is very much a, like what they call a bro, you know. Um, not used <laughs> to seeing the bro do this kind of thing, but that's kind of yeah. exciting and scary about the movie. <laughs> so I really enjoyed the movie Nightcrawler from 2014. Me too. Uh, your movie reminds me of that in a way. There, the director hired the right cast, including Rene Russo, who was fabulous as an undercard to Jake Gyllenhaal. People know Ryan Felipe, uh, who is an FBI agent tracking Brown, but it seems to me that Pelfrey and cast members were really allowed to shine their abilities. Kevin Corgan plays Brown's absentee father, and he was a big fan. How did you assemble such a great cast? Well, thank you for saying that. And also, thank you for comparing it to Nightcrawler, because that was my favorite movie of that year. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> you know, I like, you know, I, I, I'd love to say it's that I'm so talented and the script is so great. But the truth is, I got super lucky. Um, you know, I, we worked on this screenplay for a long time. You know, it was it, it, it took a long time to get it into shape. But I, I had I had lists of actors, you know, in Hollywood, they always have lists of actors they want in their movies, you know, and you never usually get your top few choices. In this case, you know, I never imagined we would get a cast this stacked for this movie. Um, you know, I thought we were going to get way below what we got. Like, I remember one of my producers when I was working on the... I don't know, 50th version of the screenplay said, you know, if you really write the scene with the mom, well, you could get, we could try to get Jackie Weaver. And I laughed. I was like, we're not going to get Jackie Weaver for this part. So it's a tiny role. And like, she's a two time Oscar nominated actress. But you mm -hmm. see, when we went out to first cast the film, we went out in March 2020. So the world was shut down. We didn't know who was going to play Jason. And we got Tom right at the time, we got him attached right at the time when Ozark had dropped. And he was getting a lot of heat and a lot of offers. Um, and he chose to do our little indie movie. And then around Tom, we got this incredible uh, cast of actors, you know, starting with Ryan Philippe. And once it was Tom and Ryan, the movie really took off and, and just got this, you know, it attracted more amazing actors because I think what happened was, you know, it's sort of like one goes to the other, right? They see Tom's in it. They're like, oh, that guy's amazing from Ozark. I want to be in that movie. Mm -hmm. And they see Ryan yeah. and Tom are in it. Then they see Jackie Ryan and Tom. And, <laughs> Ryan. and it's like, who wants to yeah. party? Um, and, you know, it was we were filming in November 2020. I highly doubt that at any other time, even like early 2021, all of these actors would have been available. We would have maybe gotten one or two, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. we were just really, really... I mean, like in Tom, you know, when he wrapped the movie, he has been working, all of them have been working nonstop since, you know, shooting shows and movies and whatnot. So it's really, um, we really got lucky that we were able to get this amazing cast. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I think the script definitely helped, but, you know, it's, it comes down to hard work, talent, timing, and luck. <laughs> and I think a good part of it was luck for us that, that we were able to get this amazing cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when is the movie coming out? How can people see it? Uh, American Murderer will be released in theaters October 21st, select theaters, and then it will be out on 
digital on demand on October 28th. So you can rent it on all VOD platforms. Um, anywhere you can rent a movie, you can rent our film. Awesome. Uh, you've got a few other movies under your belt, uh, like Lawman, for instance. Uh, what do you look for in a story that you do want to show on screen? Yes, Lawman was uh, my thesis film. I, I had two theses, shorts, Lawman and Frontman, no relation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but yes, yeah, so those are my short films. And American Murder is my first feature. Uh, you know, I'm planning my next ones, um, all of which are true crime. But, you know, for me... I kind of look for three things. Uh, the first is character, um, you know, mm-hmm. someone who fascinates me. Um, the second is story. You know, is it a great story? Is it a movie? Is it, uh, and the third for me is spectacle. Um, you know, the movies I grew up, my, my favorite film of all time is uh, Lawrence of Arabia, you know, which mm-hmm. has all three of those things. It's, it's a great character. It's um, a really interesting story of, you know, the, the history of that era. And it's also incredibly, it's a spectacle, that film. It's, you know, I've seen it in 70 millimeter, like 40 times. And it's just, oh. a movie. so for, for me, like, I love movies that, you know, are both intimate in character, but epic in scope. Um, oh, you know, okay. and, uh, but I, I love a lot of, you know, I'm fascinated by human behavior first and foremost. You know, that's why the reason why American murder interested me so much was, the characters, you know, and that's what it, that's, I think, the number one thing is character. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Matthew, I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, I really enjoyed it, um, Chip, and I enjoyed talking to you. It was yeah. such a pleasure. You, did, you yeah. really asked great questions. Um, you know, your podcast is really strong and well thought out, and, you know, and you're a great writer. So this was a, this was a great chance for me to talk to you, to another, another writer in this space. And, uh, yeah, uh, hopefully it'll be the first of many conversations. Yeah. Well, you, you got it, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thanks. So (laughs) yeah, people got to go out and see it, man. It's awesome. It really is. And, uh, go see it. Um, thanks a lot. I will talk to you later. Good luck with it, and congrats. Thank you so much, Chip. I always tell you the truth. Do you know that? How do I look? Deadly? Good answer. Bro, they made a movie about you. Like I said before, they don't usually do that unless there's some redemption left in the character. But what about you? Is the real Jason Derrick Brown out there, or am I talking to a ghost? I think there's a chance the 53-year-old man is still out there somewhere, and he might have some things to say to the 35-year-old. We all make mistakes along the way, and I honestly don't think you're past the point of no return in 2022. I asked the question if you might kill another, or was it that thrill-seeking way about you that made you pull the trigger? Time does not heal all wounds. Wounds tend to make us more bitter, especially the ones we deliver. But if you want to flip the script, then consider turning yourself in. You might have thought about that before, of course. If that's the case, then the time between the last time and before is important. If it still isn't buried in your subconscious today, then you know the answer. Then again, I might be talking to someone who was that groundskeeper, a guy who worked the graveyard because he liked to tee off when everybody was sleeping. Members who owned the priciest drivers found that they would disappear and they could never pin it on anybody. You were always one step ahead of the others who didn't know any better. Bro, they made a movie about you. Is there another chapter?